You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. We're at Anthem Entertainment in Nashville for this interview with singer-songwriter H. Jack Williams. Anthem is one of the world's leading independent music and entertainment content and services companies. With publishing, production, the iconic Anthem Records, film and television, music licensing, pretty amazing place. Of course, we took plenty of pictures in the lobby, so be sure to follow us at Country Music Success Stories. As JC and I prepped for this interview, we just couldn't help but be amazed at his career. Nearly 50 years of writing songs and making music with icons like Richie Havens, The Who, Uriah Heep, Greg Allman, and most recently, Kevin Costner, for his band Modern West, and for his hit TV series Yellowstone. But what is even more amazing is that Jack is still alive to tell his story because he was so badly abused as a child. Well, now he's 70 years old, and this Renaissance man is experiencing an incredible second act as a recording artist, and you just can't help but root for his continued success. H. Jack Williams' middle name should have been Persistence, because he never, ever gave up. You know, I still chase everything every day, and and I still get told no in a lot of circumstances, and it'll knock me down. I'll go down hard and then I'll just get back up, try it again, you know, a different way. Or if that's not obtainable, at least now I've learned that if I can't go through that door, I can't go through that door. Forget about it. Let's try that one. We settled into a conference room at Anthem Entertainment and to our delight, Jack brought us a dozen eggs from his home in the countryside. His latest album is called Halfway to Hell and it's pretty raw. There are 10 songs that he co-wrote, including two with Kevin Costner. You can hear the pain in every word and every note. And I wondered if writing these songs was a conscious decision, an effort to just free himself by letting all the heartache out. I don't think that was a conscious decision. I just think that it was in the beginning of COVID. I was, like everybody else, stuck on the couch watching TV and I finally decided I couldn't do that. I watched everything Netflix had. I was like burned out. So I finally went to my studio and I wrote a song. It started one more day, actually. And I talked to Adam Box and I said, let's do a record. I had done an EP called Already Dead. And there was some really sincere stuff there. And I just felt like I wanted to go ahead and let it all out. And I'm still doing it. I don't find it to be a task. It's interesting about the pandemic, and we've interviewed many artists who had some of their greatest aha moments during the pandemic because they had to come in off the road, this crazy schedule, all of a sudden everything settles down, and you dig down deep, and sometimes that's where the songs are, when Mm -hmm. you give yourself a moment to breathe. There's a song called Beat Me Again, opening line, when I was a boy, you whipped me like a slave, and I dreamed about pissing on your grave. I went out to California to see Kevin, and do some stuff with Anthem out there. And I met with Earl, and we had lunch at Bob's Big Boy. Now listen, we had never written together. And he said, tell me about a period in your life. And I did. And we went back to his house, and he wrote that lyric. He pretty much wrote the first draft of it. And then we, you know, chopped it up later on. But all that was pretty much Earl just digging in to what I was saying about my father and mother. (laughs) 
When I was a boy, you whipped me like a slave. I dreamt about pissing all over your grave. Left that cemetery feeling the same. For years I carried round all the blame. For years I carried round all the blame. are 10 songs on Halfway to Hell that you co-wrote, and there are also, you just said his name, so I'm going to say it too, there are some Kevin Costner co-writes on that. How'd oh, you yeah. meet Kevin? Tell me that story. About eight years ago, I said to my wife, I want to work with Kevin. And, okay, well, I mean, when I set my mind out to do something, I do it. And so I went, and I did my thing, and I couldn't get anywhere, every red flag. Finally, I saw that he had a band. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know that he sang. And he had a band called Modern West. So I went on his website, and I found Modern West's website. So when I found their website, then I looked at the players, and there was two of them, two guys that lived here, Park and Teddy. And I just went, eeny, meeny, miny, and I ended up with Teddy. And I, Teddy had an email address. You know, I introduced myself and threw my bio in there so he knew that I wasn't just some... But he trying to get a, an autograph. And uh, we had coffee, and Teddy said, well, what do you really want? You know, he wasn't no dummy. He said, what do you really want? I said, I want to work with Kevin. I want to meet Kevin. And he said, well, without saying it, you got to go through us first. You know, you got to work with us. Kevin's real organic, and everything that he does comes from the inside. He doesn't look outside. So you got to write with us first. And I said, well, that's cool. Let's write. So Teddy and I uh, set a date. And we wrote, our first song we wrote was called Heaven is So Far Away. And Teddy, of course, he sent everything at that time. He does send everything to Kevin. You know, I had no email. I had not, so I had to trust that he did. And the next day, he said, he loves it. He wants to record it. So that went on. When Kevin goes out, he only does 10 dates or something because he's busy with his movies. So, and so he only does these short little stints. And he was doing this thing where he did the Knoxville somewhere in North Carolina and somewhere in Florida. And so Teddy said, I'm going to drive to Knoxville. He had twins just born. And he said, I'm not going to do the bus thing. He said, I'm just going to drive to Knoxville, turn around and get right back to the babies. He said, you want to go with me? And I went, yeah. So went to Knoxville and he said, but there's going to be one problem. And I said, what's that? He said, it's an 11 o'clock show. And he says, and we're going to have a 3.30 sound check. He says, and we're all going to go to bed. We're all going to just sleep. And you're on your own. Can you do that? Can you just stand around and just do nothing for five hours? And I said, sure, of course I will. So sound check came on. They played. Kevin kind of waved at me. He knew Teddy went, 
you know, and he waved at me, and that was it. And everybody went to bed, and this was about 4.30. I was out in the parking lot talking to my wife on the phone, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around, and this guy said, you Jack? And I went, yeah. He said, Kevin wants to see you on the bus. So, I mean, I was like, oh, okay, here we go. And I walked on the bus, and he was with Mark, one of his editors and directors, and they were sitting doing something for Yellowstone, I believe, and uh, he got up and he said, I got one question for you. And I said, what's that? Before we even entered, shook hands, he said, what do you think about the way I sang your song? And I honestly said, you could have sang shit and I would have loved it. <laughs> That's he, the right answer. <laughs> and he loved it and we laughed. And so we started talking and the next thing that happened on that bus was we were alone. And he said, what do you think of, of the band? I said, I love the band. And because the band is really good. The cross between the birds and the eagles, I mean, they're really good. You got some great musicians. And what did you think of the songs? I said, really good. He said, I hear a but. And I said, no, 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 they're really good. He said, but. And I went, two of the songs you should rekey. And he went, what do you mean by rekey? And I went, they're too high. Bring them down a little bit. You're at the top of your range. And he said, I've been trying to tell a band that for a year. And just about that moment, the band comes walking on the bus. And he went, Jack here says we need it. And they all looked like they were going to kill me. I mean, who is this guy to tell us? Teddy, actually, he said, I've been telling you that for a while, Kevin. And they changed the key. And, and uh, we just, from that moment on, we were friends because he said, stay in touch with me. Here's my number. Here's this and here's that. And... Um, and of course, like I do everything else, I bugged him every single day for about four years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but no. It was, um, isn't, it, isn't it so interesting, though, Jack, how no matter what industry you're in, it's always about relationships, isn't it? Only, it's always only about building trust. And once you reached that threshold with him and you answered his question honestly and you made a really good comment as of someone who spent your life in music, there it was. You made the connection with him. He trusted you. Yeah. Um, there was one time right after that when he was doing the Highwaymen. I hadn't been out to his house yet. He had me come down and spend a, a week with him when he was filming the Highwaymen down in Louisiana. I stayed in the same house. Where it was just me and him in the same house. One night I made the off comment about something to where I treated him like a, a star that, for that five seconds. And he don't do that no more. And we're friends, you know, do not. I always tell him the truth. And uh, I'm, even if I thought he didn't like it, I would tell him the truth. And, and I think that's the thing with, with anybody, but people like that. Who are used to just having I mean, I've been doing it all my life yeah. because, you know, I started out working with big stars. I know. And so I learned early on is just tell the truth. That's what they, they have so many yes people around them. The way to stay there with them is to always to tell them the truth, whether it's something they want to hear or not. You don't offer it, but when asked, you tell the truth. Let's go back. Even though I know some of the things that you're going to talk about are hard, I think they frame your story, your country music success story that we're here to talk about today. You're originally from Eureka, Florida, in a very abusive relationship. Can you take us into your early life? Tell us a little bit about your mom, your dad, where they came from, and what life was like in your house. Well, I was born in Miami, and I was adopted. There's a famous doctor. Her name is Catherine Cole, C-O-L-E, and 
uh, I don't know if you know who K Senator Kefauver is, but Senator Kefauver had these hearings with the Kennedys, and they would investigate heavyweight criminals. And this woman, Catherine Cole, she had a black market baby thing going on in Miami to where she would bring in girls that were pregnant, didn't have a place to go. She would feed them, clothe them, make them feel like a million bucks and have somebody ready to buy their baby. And then when it was time to deliver the baby, she would take them upstairs and she'd knock them out, deliver the baby, sell the baby, come back downstairs, give the baby to Theram, these two people, off they go for $1,000. And then she'd go back up and tell the mom the baby died and they could never, ever, I mean, if you Google her, they never could bust Catherine. They could never wow. get enough on her. And she was so slick that the, the, even the, the Kennedys, Ted and all those guys, they could not bust her. Anyway, I happened to go through that. And then I came out and these people called the Strudels, they adopted me first. Them and my adopted parents that I grew up with had a guest house in Miami, and they adopted me first. And no telling what my life would have been like if I had stayed with them because they were really connected Jewish people, had some money and everything. But six months into that, about eight nine months old, he had a heart attack and died. And Mrs. Trudell, she didn't feel like she could raise a child on her, so she asked B and Rex, my parents, if they would want to adopt me. And they said, yeah. And so she said, pay the lawyer fee, the doctor fee, and she's yours. And one hand went another, and I ended up with them. Those early days, if I look at my baby book, those early days from the time I was adopted from them to the time I was about, let's see, I think it goes up to eighth grade were glory days. I mean, everything, Jackie was happy. Jackie was this. You could see I was just, the whole family was, it was a happy, happy family. And then something flipped just about the time I was getting ready to go in ninth grade, I think. It was right about the time with the Cuban invasion hit Miami, and we had the race riots. My father was a card-carrying KKK guy from West Virginia, and he was very racist. And um, he was up for a promotion at the post office, and a black man got it. And uh, I think it twisted him. I had dark skin. Still do. I think he saw that. He came home and and he something happened right about that point. Something twisted in him and that was it. And I remember that I had gotten a D or something and uh, Jackie talks too much, asks too many questions. And he went outside and he cut a piece of a garden hose off. And that was it. That was the uh, beginning of the abuse. I mean, he just started using a garden hose on me and would beat me till I bled. When you go through an experience like that, it's almost as if you come to a place where this is either going to kill me or you make a decision, I'm going to survive this. Do you remember saying to yourself, I got to get out of here or... Yeah, uh, I ran away from home. I mean, I ran away from home two or three times when I was 13 and 14 years old and I always got dragged back. And they always told the cops that, oh, we miss him, we love him. And then, you know, I'd get in the house and they'd kick my butt from one end of the place to the other. And my mom jumped in, too. I think he was abusing her. I think you get to a point where you can't hurt me anymore. I mean, no one can hurt me. You can't hurt me any worse than he's doing with a whip. I finally made the decision that this was it. I was going to go for good. When I went to school that day, and I never dressed out for gym, 
um, because of all my bruises and stuff. And I remember that the coach, he uh, he took me, he, him and the principal came down and they, and they took me to the office and he literally ripped off my shirt and he said, nah, I knew it. And they said, you stay right here. We're calling the police. And they closed the door and they went out and that was the moment. That was the moment where I said to myself, okay, if they call the police, he's going to kill me. He will really will kill me this time. I'm gone. And I just walked out the door and hitchhiked to New York and never turned back until it was time to go into the Marines. I found out that I could join the Marines on my 17th birthday with my father's signature. And so I just made him promise that he'd sign. Oh, well, that would make him proud. That was it. My son's going to be a Marine. Oh, well, that's great. Sign him up. And I remember talking to my kid, my TJ. He knows my boy. TJ is just the gentlest soul in the world. This year, he turned 18. I looked at TJ. I was walking around the campus with TJ, and I said, you know, when I was 18, I was jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was an interesting situation, but that's what made it happen. What a story. And by the way, are you wearing airborne wings there? Mm, yeah. I am a military mom. My son is a special forces soldier in the United States Army. He's a Green Beret. Sports recon. There you go. So tell us a little bit about your experience. Did you go to Paris Island? Where did you train mm -hmm. for, the, for the Marine Corps? Tell us about it. I went to Paris Island. Um, <laughs> uh, you should have seen the look on your face. You kind of went there for a second, you know? I didn't hate Paris Island at all. I mean, I, I mean it, was, it was a blessing to get away from what I was in, even though it was tough. And then I went to... Um, Camp Lejeune, and then I went to jump school, Fort Benning. All Army Rangers. That was a great time in my life. And I was, uh, I went through force recon training, and I was geared up and ready to go. I had orders to Vietnam. And right before you go to Vietnam, they always send you home for a couple weeks. And I went home. I got into a, I didn't, but my buddy got into a car wreck, threw me out of the car, and I sliced my knee up. So it made me stay home for an extra week or two while my knee healed. When I got back to the base at Pendleton, my commander called me in the office and he said, Washington has made a mistake. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's two sets of orders here. And he says, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. He said, I'm going to go out and smoke a cigarette. When I come back, whatever sets there is where you're going. And I went, okay. And I looked down and one of them was to Vietnam and the other one was to Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. And I was like, I, it was like, I really wanted to go to Vietnam and kill people. I mean, well, that's what all, I wanted to do. You're all riled up. You've I was fired up. But that's then right. there was this moment of, you can live. You can live. It was a God moment, I guess. Yeah. You know, and I just ripped up the Vietnam orders and ended up in Hawaii. Let's jump forward to the night that you were knocking on Richie Haven's <clears throat> door. You got to tell me that story. I had made friends with Alex Cooley, and he was the biggest promoter on the Southeast, concert promoter. Him and Concerts West, they were the biggest. And I made friends with him. He liked my music. I was a young, ambitious songwriter. Wasn't very good, but he just liked my ambition. And so he said, the only way I can help you is give you a, here's your personal backstage pass, all my shows. And you always use proper etiquette. Don't ever embarrass me back there. I don't want to ever hear anybody say anything because I'll take it away. So I started going there and I started meeting people. 
I was in awe of Richie because he played the acoustic guitar like I did. And I was just in awe of him. And I met him and, and he said, why don't you just come back to the hotel and uh, play me some songs and, and let's talk. So I did. And I uh, got back there and he was already in the room. This was about 11 o'clock at night. And I just did a, <laughs> you know, I was scared shitless. And no one answered, but the music was loud and you smelled pot and coming out the door it just i knew there was something going on in there and i midnight i did it nothing and then about one o'clock i still didn't and finally about two o'clock and he finally came to the door and he said if nothing else you're persistent which has been the key to your success story from day one right yeah persistence that's an amazing story let's go back to your guitar for just a second how old were you when you started playing guitar and writing songs that's a cool story my mom taught swimming at the YMCA pool. She was a swimming teacher during the summer, and I, I took lessons from her, and I ended up being a lifeguard at an early age. At the end of the summer, we'd have a pool party, and they'd always have something. This particular time, they had this little band. This guy had, you know, a buzz cut, and he had a strat, and he played like Dwayne Eddy. And he was good, and I was like, wow. My dad said, if you learn to play, I'll buy you a guitar. And he bought me a, back then, this, Sears had a silver tone guitar. It was black and white, and it was in a case. And you opened up the case, and you took the guitar out, and you stood the case up, and you plugged the case in, and it had a little amplifier. You know what I'm talking about? To get to that silver tone guitar amp. And you plugged it in, and you plugged your guitar in. And I started trying to learn to play rock and roll, and my father said, you either learn to play, he taught me how to play Wildwood Flower and Red River Valley. And he said, you learn to play country or I'll take it away from you. And I didn't want to play. I hated country music because that's what my mom was listening to. I just couldn't stand it. I wanted to play rock and roll. So he took it away. He took away my guitar and everything. And that was that. And then one day he came home with a U-Haul trailer and he brought in the C3 organ and he brought it in for my mom. I had just seen the Vanilla Fudge playing Keep Me Hanging On, and I was so into B3 organ, and everybody was using an organ and like that, and I just sat down and started playing the organ, and I thought that was the best thing ever, and so my buddies had this little band, so they would practice at my house because I couldn't drag the organ over there, so they would sit on the porch, and I would sit on the organ in the living room in the afternoons, and we, we had this little band, and I played the senior prom <laughs> that year. And for songwriting, all I did was write poems because I was shy because, you know, I came from a kind of a white trash kind of a place. And so I was really shy. So if I liked a girl, I'd write her a poem and drop it on her. And that seemed to work. And it wasn't until I met Peter Gabriel when he told me that a poem and a song was two different things. And it wasn't until I put that together when I started writing songs. And that was probably when I was 21. You also decided that you were going to knock on the door of a tour bus that was belonging to The Who, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, become your mentors as well. I was the sous chef at the Abbey in Atlanta, which is still there. I was married and I had a, a one-year-old daughter, and I was on my way there, and I saw these guys in a, standing in a parking lot, and I knew they were a band, but I didn't know what, and I suddenly looked, and it said The Who on the back of them. So I just pulled in and, and walked up to the first person I saw, it was a guy named Doug Clark, 
who are still very close friends to this day. And I asked Doug, what's the chances of meeting Roger Daltrey? And he said, slim and none. And I went, okay. Then I turned around and headed off to work. And he said, stop, wait a minute, bud. Why do you want to meet Roger anyway? Because I'm a songwriter. And I wanted him to hear a couple of my songs. Well, well, hang on. And he called Roger. And Roger said, I'm too busy. Get him a room. Bring him to the show tonight. I'll talk with him there. So, <laughs> you know, I'm 20 years old. And uh, I got my chef's clothes on. And got <laughs> Did me you a have room. your chef's hat on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But I didn't have it on. Oh, okay. You know, but it was in the car. All right. But, well, now... I'm not going to work. I'm going to hang with the who. <laughs> but I got to get changed too. I can't go to the show in my chef's clothes. So I said, Doug, I got to go home. We'll just take the limo. So we pull into my apartment complex and my wife comes out over the balcony holding Crystal, my daughter, and we start screaming at me like, why ain't you at work? You said, because... We're going to go see the who? No, we're not. You're going to work. And I went, no, I'm not. And so that didn't get to see him that night. So I had to stay in the hotel the next day waiting to see him. Didn't get to see him. Three straight nights, sold out shows. Didn't get to see him. Went on the road with him. Bring him along. We'll get to him. If you like him, we like him, Dougie. And, you know, I actually ended up meeting him along the way in passing, but never to play any songs to and it didn't end up until two months later in boston the last night of the show um bill kerbersley their manager and jackie's wife bill still is the who's manager pete and roger want to talk to you and i went in there and bring a guitar i brought my guitar and roger and peter sitting there and we'll play us some songs and was, you had their undivided attention for and that it moment was horrible really oh my was did you choke? Did you feel <laughs> You know, it was that. You know, it was terrible. <laughs> they signed me up, though. And I had not seen a show. Not one show. I had only been allowed backstage. I never saw one show. And that night, you want to see the show's show? And it took me right out to the soundboard. Stuck with Bobby Pridden with the sound man. And I was right there with that show and saw those guys. And they were the greatest rock and roll band in the world. They just tore it up. And it was great. They gave me a year contract. And they paid me weekly, and Pete taught me how to write songs. You've written hits for a lot of people. As you look back on this big, long career, what songs are you most proud of? That's easy, just before the bullets fly. That's Greg Allman, right? Greg was such a great blues singer. I mean, for a songwriter, for me, 
I get a joy out of t- two things here and two people either singing a lyric that I wrote or a melody that I wrote. And it watched Greg Allman sing something that Warren Haynes and I wrote. And Greg named his record after it. And I went on a road with him and got to be great friends. And, and that song became a life of its own. It, it went into a movie. It was my first sync. Went into a movie called Renegades with Lou Diamond Phillips and Kiefer Sutherland, Sun Seals, who was a awesome blues artist out of Alligator Records. He cut it, and then he put it on his Greatest Hits album, and then Coco Montoya cut it and put it on his album. I think the biggest moment I ever had with that song was I played Puckets. I was playing out there uh, last year with some songwriter friends of mine, and we looked out in the crowd, and I said, there's Bill Belichick. <laughs> there's my Boston connection. There you go. <laughs> and I went, what's he doing here? And so we played. I ran over to him. His girlfriend said. Linda Halliday. Mm-hmm. They introduced themselves, and I said, I want to get your autograph. And he said, well, I want yours. He said, the feeling's mutual. And I went, what are you talking about? He said, that song that you closed with just before the bullets fly? He said, I have that album hanging on my office wall. And I went, well, isn't this cool? So I met the, the greatest coach in the world, and he loved my song. So that was a great moment for me. There's an art to the co-write. How does that work for you? Are you a good co-writing partner for somebody? How does it go? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I always turn the room over to the other guy. You know, I think the best things you can do in a co-write is try not to be a song bully, which there are a lot of. And especially when you're writing with an artist, I think the one thing I learned is write what the artist wants, not what you want, even if you don't like it. Because if you write something the first time with them and you don't like it, if you get let them write whatever they want, they're going to write with you again. And sooner or later, you're going to get something good. A few years ago, you started going to singer-songwriter nights, singing your own songs. I read that, I think it was either Roger Daltrey or Pete Townsend who told you, always get the best singers to demo your songs, right? Mm -hmm. And this time, you separated from that, and now you're writing your own songs, singing your own songs. That must have been very brave of you at that moment. Did you have to sort of just let that go and say, this is me, and this is how I sound, and this is my song? Well, that's how I started out. I started out doing that with Richie Havens, and he always wanted me to be the artist then, but I just couldn't get my confidence up with my voice. I didn't like my voice. I hated my voice. And so I just felt like it'd be better if I hid in the shadows and let somebody else sing. Adam Box was the one that brought it. I mean, he was the one that said, what are you talking about? I love your voice. It's so unique. And so he started working with me. And once he started working with me and bringing it out of me and helping me build up my confidence. Then all of a sudden, all kinds of people started saying they liked my voice. And I was going, wow, I don't know. I mean, I've never had anybody tell me that before. I still find it weird. I figured out what I like about it now. What and do I, you like about it? The authenticity. When I listen, it's a deeply emotional experience that's coming out of the song that I think only you could project because it's your story. Asking me to do it and pulling it out of me and making me do it is what... Grows you know, your confidence. I'm, I'm, I, I should have been doing this at 20 years old, <laughs> not 70. Guess you could say I'm here Until I ain't no more Open the path I'm on Leave 
have said, quote, my whole life, I've gone out and gotten stuff done. How did you stay strong and stay determined? Did you take all the advice from all these mentors, even all the way down to the story that you just told me, and then just build up your confidence as people said, hey, you can do this? I think it was the guys in the beginning. I think it was the Ken Hensleys, the, the Richie Havenses, and the Peter Gabriels. I think in the very beginning, they instilled a thing in me that said, don't stop. No matter what, it took us all these years. It'll take you all these years. And every time I have gotten to a point where something's knocked me down hard, and stuff still does. You know, I still chase everything every day, and, and I still get told no in, in a lot of circumstances, and it'll knock me down. I'll go down hard, and, and then I'll just get back up Try it again, you know, a different way. Or if that's not obtainable, at least now I've learned that if I can't go through that door, I can't go through that door. Forget about it. Let's try that one. When you hear one of your songs, how does that feel? Do you turn it up? Do you still get excited about it? Mm -hmm. Man, I was on cloud nine when I heard one of my songs in Yellowstone. I play it for everybody. I got it set right on that scene. So when every time somebody comes around, watch this. <laughs> and there's something also about not just hearing your song, but then seeing it with a visual, right? Mm -hmm. Probably the best thing ever was, for me, the best thing I've ever seen done was Kevin and I wrote, Kevin and Troy Johnson and a few, we wrote a song called Won't Stop Loving You that's on this record. And Kevin did a video of it and he sang it. And that was a moment to see my song with the lyrics, with Kevin Costner <laughs> singing the song in a video that they produced. That was, that's, that's an awesome thing. Well, it's never gotten over being broken. I've done everything I know to do. Your memory surrounds me. It's the only mountain I can move. Cause my heart won't. Oh, my heart won't, oh, my heart just won't stop loving you. Do you think that 13-year-old Jackie would have ever thought that would happen to his life? I don't think 13-year-old Jackie would have thought he might be alive still. <laughs> this is a huge body of work, Jack. What are you most proud of as you look back on these 50-some-odd years? I'm most proud of? Yeah. Musically anything, or life? Anything. My son. You said that he's a gentle soul. And he's smart. He just got accepted to the University of Alabama Chemical Engineering School. I mean, to come from where I've come from and to have him and to have never laid a hand on him and to have him just be the coolest kid that I know, that's what I'm most proud of. Final question. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in music, whether that be rock or country, you name it, has been what? Persistence. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest on the Country Music Success Stories podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm JC Don Valeris, your Music City mentor, and that was the deeply inspiring story of H. Jack Williams, a man who has never given up on reaching for his dreams and goals. If you're an aspiring artist, you've probably wondered how to connect with the right people who can mentor, encourage, and help you get from point A to point B in your career. H-Jack is the ultimate example of how having the right people around you can lead to success. 
I asked him what his advice would be for a young artist, and his answer was simple. You have knocked on hotel doors, pulled over in parking lots to try to make connections with people in the music industry, and ended up getting mentored by so many of the biggest artists in the music industry as a whole. If a young artist comes up to your hotel room, knocks on the door, walks in, what piece of advice do you give them? How do you mentor them? I try to let them know, first of all, I work with them. And second of all, um, to when they ask me what the bit, most thing they should never know, I always tell them the same thing is, don't take no for an answer, ever. Don't ever take no for an answer and don't stop believing in yourself. I mean, everybody told me I couldn't do what I was doing. And people tell me now I can't do what I'm doing. I'm trying to play the Opry right now. I'm trying, I've got my team trying to get me to play, I guess. And I have had three or four people go, oh, right. I'm going to do it. So the real question is, how do you attract these A-listers in a way that you might find yourself in their presence with the chance to knock on their hotel door? Here are my tips on how to put yourself in a position to meet them. Tip number one. Try reaching out. I can't tell you how many artists and industry people have come into my own life simply by me reaching out to connect or by me responding to their reaching out. Just like any other business, it's all about relationships. If you have a mutual connection to somebody, send them a DM on social media. Shoot off an email introducing yourself and you just might be surprised when you receive a response. With that being said, don't bombard anyone with messages. Keep it straight and keep it simple. And if you don't hear back, don't consider it the end. Just consider the fact that it might not be meant to be right now. Tip number two, continue to build your brand on social media so that you attract the right people. Be friendly, interact, and find creative ways to tie in the people that you hope to someday work with. Maybe this means duetting with an artist on TikTok, or responding to a Q&A, or even asking a question during a live stream. Do whatever it takes to connect with them in an authentic way. Tip number three, don't be afraid to introduce yourself. For example, if you happen to be at a writer's round or an industry event in Nashville, walk up to the person you really want to connect with and introduce yourself. Have your elevator pitch ready and let them know how happy you are to have the chance to meet them. Don't gush or be an over-the-top fan. Just be you and you might make a connection that sticks. Always remember, the music business is like any other business. Making friends and staying connected is key to your success. We are all here to help one another. So remember, when you're in a position to turn around and help the next person in line, don't hesitate. We are all part of the chain and must all do our part. More wisdom you can use from J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City mentor, inspired by the advice of H. Jack Williams. Our thanks to Jack for being so open and honest in this interview and for the eggs he gave us and to Anthem Entertainment for hosting us. We hope you'll tell your family and friends about country music success stories. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. Our TikTok handle is at Candy and JC. The series is now available on the Country Line app, so please download it for all things country music. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry. And I'm JC Don Valeris. Thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories.
where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.